Thanks all for being here and for taking this journey with me and for letting me geek out with you for 12 weeks. I think this is going to be really fun, hopefully. <laughs> and also probably some that it will be challenging and it will be brain twisting sometimes, but all for all the right reasons, I think. So I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better. I'm excited for you all to get to know each other a little bit better. So I think as we're just starting to kick off, because I've already showered you with tons of information in the form of the syllabus and emails and the program and community agreement and all of those things, I feel like we're ready to just jump straight in to introductions and then jump straight into content. But if you have any housekeeping questions, logistical questions, please do let me know. Actually, let me just open the floor to any logistical questions you might have to start, anything that you need clarified. But as we go, obviously, I'll keep us up to date on the schedule and keep you up to date on like the homework and things like that. But any logistical or administrative questions that you have that haven't been thoroughly answered yet? Okay, thank God. I've tried to answer everything ahead of time. Okay, cool. As always, participating in the chat, participating video on, video off, mic on, mic off, that is totally up to you. I should say, I prefer if you keep your mics off when you're not speaking, but feel free to unmic, unmute at any time to participate. But otherwise, I'll keep my eye on the chat. I'll keep my eye on you. I'll keep my eye on all the things. But let's do introductions. So I'll start and then I will leave it up to you. So feel free when I'm finished to unmute yourself and just jump right in. And that way, if anyone is wanting to stay quiet today, I won't put you in the in the hot seat. I'm Tara. Uh, I'm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And my work is this. It's thinking about... I. The headline I've been using on things is, I think about work all the time and that it's not nearly boring or neurotic as it sounds because work, as we're going to talk about today, is probably the most influential institution in all of our lives. And certainly as a society that has become less religious, less centralized, work is this thing that we all have in common in one way or another, but that doesn't necessarily mean that work works for all of us or even most of us. So that's why I give so much thought to it. And a belief that I had about work that I no longer hold is that if I did all the right things, I would just get to where I thought I was supposed to be, which was like comfortable and stable and secure. And that's not true. That is also what my work is all about and why I'm here. Who wants to jump in next? I can go. If that's all right, Susan, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I'm Nyla. I my daughter goes to school in Lancaster. So, oh, really? Yeah, she's at Franklin and Marshall. And I just realized awesome. that's awesome. Yeah. So maybe someday we'll have a chance when I'm visiting her. I too think about work all the time. I work as a coach and sometimes professor and facilitator, and I help people figure out how to be healthy around work. 
in part because I have, was not healthy around work. I attribute that a lot to having grown up first generation American and falling for the myth that like work was basically your pathway to salvation and the justified our parents' decision to leave their homeland. So I'm also working on a book proposal around how to create that better relationship with work. And it's really meant for people who I think like me, like high achieving, all those out external markers of the good work life that in the end leaves us brittle and pretty um, confused about what a good life is. Um, and so something I believed was that achieving all that, those milestones would be not just like a pathway to security, but like meaning, like it was going to make my life worthwhile. And I'm still figuring out how to want things and also not make myself a shell of a human at the same time. So that's why I'm here. And I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Tyla. Good to meet you. Uh, I'll go. Uh, I'm Susan. I uh, am a financial and operations consultants for small businesses. So I think about work all the time, particularly within the context of helping other people design how they deliver their services and think about kind of capacity and sustainability and designing their services in a way that is sustainable for them, for how they think, for what their life looks like and what they want their business to be. So I think about really tactical ways of doing work and spend a lot of time thinking about how I personally approach work and am still in the process of unlearning a lifetime of really work-focused, achievement-focused stuff. So I would love to say that the thing that I don't think anymore is that <laughs> working hard and achieving things, the myth of the meritocracy, I would love to say that I fundamentally don't believe that anymore. And logically, I don't believe it anymore, but I, my, my body doesn't is still not quite bought in. So I spent a lot of time convincing myself that's not true. The thing that I have internalized as not being true anymore is that the number of hours that I work relates to how productive or how much I can produce, how creative I can be, and really focusing more on the number of hours I'm resting versus the number of hours I'm working. So, oh, and I'm in Colorado. Thanks, Susan. Hi, I'm Julie. I'm jumping in because already both well, so much of what both of you have said is is so resonant. I'm also like, think about work all the time uh, from the perspective of it's. It feels like my life's work to deconstruct my patterns around overwork and achievement, and I've been following those threads consciously for about ten years after having a the bigger burnout after co-founding a nonprofit many years ago. And so then I shifted into business coaching and consulting and I made it my mission to, to support people to have healthier relationships with their work. And so I've always been in the question, but it's always been my own journey. And I stopped put, putting that forward facing in my business a few years ago because it didn't feel, I just don't have the answer to this. Like I, I don't feel equipped to at least to lead with that because I, I know I can I can add something in those realms. I've learned a ton about it over the year, how to better relate to my work and patterns around productivity. But it's just, it's always a work in progress for me. And it feels something that just fascinates me. And I'm looking at all the threads. Nyla, you mentioned your ancestry and I'm third generation, but my Jewish immigrant great-grandparents, there's still a flow of that. I need to show up. I need to 
they sacrifice so much. And so I need to work harder. And then there's just our society. And then there's my internal Capricorn. I got to get to the top and make the money. And so it's a, such a huge confluence of things that I'm just, I'm, I love geeking out on this. I'm so happy to be here. And the myth for me also is that if I work harder, I'll make more money. And it's such, that's been like the, the worst for me. And I'm, I'm extracting myself from that, but um, I could say lots more, but I'm sure we'll have those opportunities. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Julie. I'll go next to, hi, I'm Jamie. I use she, her pronouns. I'm in Los Angeles. I am a freelance copy editor and a career coach. I'm currently satisfied with neither. I'm hoping that one of the things that this will be helpful for is helping me on a personal level and, and my relationship to those or whatever other things I might come up with. And also, uh, I don't know, finding a shift to something that interests me more in terms of my career coaching. And uh, listening to you guys talk, I'm, I'm just like, keep thinking of more myths that I like work myths. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's on that one and that one. The one I came prepared to share was the thing I believe that I used to believe about work. And I think a lot of us, I know Terry, you can relate to this. It's like being a sort of elder millennial achiever person and you get good grades so you can go to college so you can get a job. And then that's like it. That's the whole purpose of your life. And this reminds me of the analogy I like is like Disney princess movies where like with relationships, it's like the whole, all the drama and the interest, the conflict, and the whole goal is to find your person. And then when you do, everything's great. And that's the end of the movie. And I feel like our careers are like sold to us like that a lot as kids where it's like you do this and this and you find your dream job and then that's it. Everything's great. And obviously that's not the case. And especially not these days and especially not for millennials. That's when I came prepared to share. I also, right before jumping on, thought again, as I think sometimes about how weird it is that we accepted that it's totally normal to spend our whole lives staring at a computer or so much of our lives. We accept, I feel like we accepted that culturally so fast. And now it's just normal that we just spend this many hours of our lives staring. That's not so weird. It's really not a weird, it's like a weird way for humans to live. That's another one. But, and I have more now that you guys have said that, but I'll stop there. But anyways, very excited to be here. Thanks, Jamie. I can go next because I'm just nodding furiously about the laptop thing. Yeah, I did some remote work last year and wherever you go, everyone's work is in front of the computer, obviously by nature of being remote work, right? But it's just, it's mad. Yeah, I'm Ellen. I live in London, England. Um, and I've spent my career really helping other people figure out what they want to do with their career is probably the best way to put it. Like um, recruitment, headhunting, worked with startup founders, figuring out what they were building. Now I'm a business coach slash career coach helping people in like the entrepreneurial sphere figure out what business they want to build, how do they want to build it, what do they want to stand for, how are they going to make their money and how are they going to fulfill their purpose ultimately through their business, which is something that I'm I'm passionate about in, in inverted commas because I think that it can be a route to fulfillment and meaning and purpose in the context of the capitalist society that we live in where the alternative is quite bad. So the jobs that are available are hardly providing people with those things and we have to make money to live so that's the alternative route but I don't think it's for everyone and I don't think that it's as easy as people say it is so that's like one of the things that I'm shifting my perspective on coupled with the idea that generally speaking you will find your passion and calling through work I think that's 
again somewhat of the myth that we've been sold and yeah I used to think that there was a dream job out there for everyone and now I, I don't think that the, the way that work is set up is actually allowing for that and people tend to be better off with a portfolio career or whatever form of career path that looks like I think this course is going to be challenging for me for a few reasons I think it's going to be test some of my assumptions and also I think I'm going to see a lot of my own stuff come up like how I have it as my identity and how productive I want to be and all these things so I'm here just to think about things differently thanks Ellen Hi, everybody. I'm Rachel, one of the two Rachels here in the group. What a pleasure. My mom purposely named me Rachel so that I wouldn't have any other Rachels in my class. <laughs> so obviously her strategy is not working. I didn't really know any Rachels growing up, but I'm delighted um, to share the space with another one in the group. I live in central New York, a little um, town called Clinton, home of Hamilton College and near Colgate University and moved here actually during the pandemic with my husband and two teenage boys. Work, oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled, Tara, that you created this opportunity. And oh my gosh, I've never been in uh, a Zoom, much less a group where everyone is like talking about the thing in such a direct way. And I remember when I got my, I started out in the corporate world and when I got my first job out of college, I just remember having this epiphany, oh my God, I can work as much as I want. There's no boundaries. And that's how I started out. There was just something that called to me about this system that really reinforced this idea that the harder you work, the more successful you're going to be. I think the biggest beliefs that I've really, one I've let go of, which is really unhealthy, I can outwork anybody. I would say that. And and that came from a much kind of older space. But I've realized now that I'm out working as a consultant and a coach that what I've had to sacrifice really to hold on to that belief. And then the other is just I can actually make money from that I can't make money from being me that I have to be constantly doing, which we all know where that comes from, just the hyper focus on productivity. I'm super passionate about helping people make positive change. I am an advocate for kind of underheard voices. I do DEI work, but my passion is more kind of human centered and really helping groups come together to do, to make important changes particularly like culture changes in organizations. But I also do life in kind of career coaching. I own my business with my husband. And one of the painful epiphanies that I've had in working with him is that we work so differently. And there's actually, when you're working in a company, you do know intellectually that people work different than you. But when you live with someone and you're working on the same things and you see someone who has a totally different approach, I can't even begin to tell you how that has been a mind-blowing, most so painful in some ways, but so 
liberating too. And I'm really in the thick of my own journey and I'm both here for myself and for whoever (laughs) dares to cross my path uh, in the future. No, I really think this is a thing that this is such an influential institution, like you said, Tara, and it's uh, what so many of us We all have it in common, and you can tell I'm passionate about this, but I'm super excited about what I'm going to learn, and thanks in advance, you all, for for being here with me. Thanks, Rachel. Anybody else? Great. I can... I'll follow on Rachel. Perfect. (laughs) I'm Rachel Fumaro, she, her, and I am currently situated in Des Moines, Iowa, formerly of San Francisco, formerly of Toronto, formerly of England, daughter of an immigrant. And then I became an immigrant myself. Definitely some of that history there of going to a country and making the most of it. And I own a, I guess a medium size now consulting and communications company called Blue Pagoda. And we have a community of consultants, about 50 consultants that work with us. We have a team of four employees And this is my third venture. I had my first venture in my 20s, another one in my 30s, and then I started this one in my 40s. And the company will be turning 10 next year. This is a huge area for me. I've been doing a lot of head nodding. And the reason I started Blue was specifically to do business differently. And I have been working through what I would call around income and having a business in the framework of anti-capitalism. But for the belief I have been able to let go of, thank goodness, is that, especially as a founder and CEO, that I'm supposed to be working time, sacrificing my health and sacrificing my family. And I just, so grateful to just through and book groups I've been in and feminist business practices have been able to to uh, bust that belief. So I'm excited to be on this journey with you, with everybody here. So thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Okay, I guess I'm last. My name's Ash Wilder. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a memoir writing coach for highly sensitive and neurodivergent people. And traditionally, I work with people who have had a bad experience in school or feel like they can't be a writer because X, Y, and Z reason. And I really joined What Works. I was really fence sitting for a little bit, Tara knows, about how this was going to show up and help people understand the worlds that they live in and how that can empower the narrative that they choose to write about. And I also feel like I really need that for myself. I think my biggest like work myth is if you build it, they will come. That just pissed me off so much when I realized that wasn't true and just how many other layers of work there are. Um, Yeah, that's it. Thanks, Ash. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for those great introductions. I love how much overlap there is in this group. And at the same time, a lot of differences in the industries you work in, the types of work that you're doing. But I think we all are coming at this with a lot of curiosity, which I love, and looking for a lot of context and maybe better caring for ourselves and for others. Hitting all the boxes there. I think 
Julie had said something to the effect of at one time having centered the idea of working in a more sustainable way or or changing the relationship with work and then pulling that back because she felt like she didn't actually have the answers. And I want to preface everything else that we're going to do through the rest of this program as also not being about having the answers, (laughs) but instead being about different ways of thinking through these things, different ways of noticing what's going on, different ways of acknowledging certain beliefs that we have, patterns that we have, habits, the systems that we exist in. So that's what a lot of the work is going to be, is just really looking, what are the underlying systems here? What are the underlying frameworks that we can be more aware of so that it's not a toolkit full of answers that we're building, but instead a toolkit of ways of thinking, of ways of noticing, and of ways of being curious. And I think that by highlighting and amplifying those skills and by building out those tools for ourselves, we can approach work with our clients, with our team members, with our colleagues in a really constructive way that can be creative and collaborative and above all, sustainable. And that kind of leads us straight into what we're going to be doing for today. Just a couple housekeeping things. This is being recorded. I will be posting both the video recording and the audio recording in the folder that's linked in the syllabus. There will also be a transcript of this, which I will do my best to make sure your names and voices are lined up properly, that you're welcome to turn on captions at the bottom of the Zoom if you'd like. And just general heads up, we're not going to be doing any breakout rooms in this thing. Breakout rooms, as much as I think that they are really helpful in a lot of scenarios, they give me a heart attack. And I don't want to give anybody else a heart attack. So we're going to be playing with some different ways of participating and seeing like how we can get some collaboration and make sure that everyone has an opportunity to participate that really wants to, but without hopefully doing the putting people in the hot seat kind of thing, because I don't want to do that to you. And I don't want to do it to myself. So (laughs) that's what we're doing. Okay. So we're going to get into the main content for this week, which is talking about work as a worldview. So I'm going to share uh, my slide deck with you. The slide deck is also in the folder that's been linked in the syllabus. And so if you want to follow along separately so you can see things a little bigger, brighter, make notes, please feel free. But I'm going to go ahead and get my screen share on here. And again, if you want to turn your video off, that's totally fine by me. I'm probably going to be making lots of weird faces because I won't be looking at myself now. (laughs) I totally understand. Okay. Like I said, we're talking about when work is your worldview. And this is by far the most broad, overarching subject that we're going to deal with in work and practice. And it's a really great place to start, I think, because it gives us a chance to really think about the ways that work seeps into every part of our lives in the same way that in the past or currently religion might. And so we're going to look seriously as work as a religion. 
So we're going to talk about workism, which is uh, Derek Thompson's term. Then we're going to look at, because I am a religion and theology nerd, we're going to look at what is religion and what does workism as a religion make sense? And then looking at it as a religion gives us an opportunity to tease apart different beliefs, different ways of thinking, different dimensions is how we're going to talk about it, of work in general, so that we can start to see some of these things that maybe you're already very familiar with, but giving you a framework for it, or maybe we start to unearth some of the things that you're not quite as familiar with so far. And then we'll have time for Q&A and discussion toward the end. So what is workism? <laughs> workism was coined by the journalist Derek Thompson in 2019. And the whole idea is that he's posing is that especially among college-educated, middle, upper-middle class people, work has become or has inserted itself into the spot that religion once had. And we know that here in the United States, but uh, around the global north, religion, uh, re overt religious participation is on the decline. And that sure, more people may be identifying as spiritual, but not religious. They might say, yes, I have beliefs. I have a distinct worldview, but it doesn't really fit a particular institution. And with that, we start seeing the breakdown of sort of these collective beliefs that we've often shared as cultures, even in a multicultural society, having those sort of touch points around belief in religions writ large. And so Thompson is saying, what if it's work? What if we see work as a religion? Now, his very viral, very common, readily shared article on workism as the new American religion doesn't actually wrestle with workism as a religion. It wrestles with our relationship to work, which is fine. That's his thing. But my thing is religion and work. And so my thought is, what happens if we actually take this seriously? What happens when we actually look at religion or work as a religion, as workism as a religion. So here's how he defines work workism in the original article. He says, it is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. I'm going to guess that I don't need to give a full-throated defense explanation of why that's true based on everything <laughs> you all said in your introductions. I feel like we're on the same page on that. But that's how he's defining this idea of workism. And from here, we're going to really start to, to think about what that actually looks like when compared to other religious belief systems. So when we start thinking about workism as a religion, that naturally leads us to the question of what is religion? And I will tell you that literally the beginning of any religious studies class that I took had some discussion of what is a religion? There's no real definition for it. Lots and lots of different thinkers, philosophers, theologians, Joe Schmoes over millennia have asked, what is 
religion? What are religions? And so there isn't one clear definition. If you think you know what religion is, I guarantee you there is a religion that we can agree is a religion that doesn't fit that definition. And so that's what makes taking workism in this in this framework seriously really interesting because it invites us to make these connections to disparate belief systems so that we can see the same workings that is happening in Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, these same workings in those religions as in our relationships with work. So one of the first definitions of religion that I think is really valuable here. It's certainly not one of the first definitions of religion, but uh, in the early 20th century, sociologist J.M. Yinger argued that what makes a cultural institution a religion was its concern with questions of ultimate value. And so what he means by this is questions that look to the meaning of things, the purpose of things, where we go when we die, <laughs> if we go, what is the nature of our being? What is the nature of the world? Metaphysical questions, teleological questions, things like that. So these big, who am I and why are we here kinds of questions. He's saying that's what makes a religion as opposed to institutions that deal with more practical concerns. So things like how much should the speed limit be on the interstate or what's the marginal tax rate for the top 0.01% of earners in this country, right? Those are practical con considerations that government can weigh in on and other institutions from there. But for religion, it's all about questions of ultimate value. And so we might ask, does work really concern itself with questions of ultimate value? That seems weird, right? To say, does but work is somehow telling us something about the meaning of life, about who we are, about all of these different things that religion is supposed to, if not give us answers to, at least give us ways of thinking about. It seems ridiculous on the surface, but I think as you all know, and as many of you said just like 10 minutes ago, we look to work for exactly those things all the time. And so while logically it seems strange, practically, uh, epistemically, it's totally plausible. So let's look a little more closely at this. Max Weber was, who's one of the fathers of sociology, was one of the first to connect beliefs about work to questions of ultimate value. And of course, he did that by looking at the Puritan uh, notion of vocation that then evolved into what he called the American spirit of capitalism and seeing religiosity in work and business. And then over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries in the time between when Weber was working in the, the late 19th century, early 20th century to now, we've seen work continue to fill the gaps left by the waning of institutional religious practice. So again, as fewer people belong to churches, as fewer people belong to synagogues or mosques or other uh, religious communities, we see work kind of creep in to fill those gaps. 
And so now work and career are associated with concepts like purpose, meaning, and self-actualization. Again, the same kinds of things you all were talking about in your introductions as well. And to just hit this home, I thought to myself, I wonder how fast it would be for me to pull up my little internet library that I use, go to the self-help and career section, open a book, and find a quote that proves this point, right? If I can do it on the first book I open, I think I'll, I think that I can say this is true, right? That's not at all scientific, but that's the challenge that I gave myself. So I opened up my Perlego online research library and I went to the self-help and career section. And one of the first books I spotted was by Jonathan Fields. His last book that, that came out in 2019 called Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive. And it's right there in the subtitle already. Right? But within the first page or two of the introduction, he writes... We can't know where to steer our lives until we better understand what makes us come alive and what empties us out. It all starts with one central question. What am I here to do? When most of us ask, we're thinking about work. What is my unique contribution to my life, to the lives around me, or to those around me, to society? If you told me that Paul wrote that in the letter to the Romans, I would believe you. <laughs> not really, because I know that's not true. But it's, it is the, the spirit of that text is at its heart a religious one. It's a whole worldview that is built around work. Uh, it's our identities. It's what makes us come alive. It's purpose. It's meaning. It's self-actualization. Does work concern itself? Does the institution of work concern itself with questions of ultimate value? My answer to that is 100% yes. There's more to it than that, of course, but that's one sort of box that we can check off um, for thinking about workism as a religion. Um so yeah, so the questions that Fields is posing here, the questions that we all are talking about when we were introducing ourselves, these are existential, teleological, even metaphysical questions. And uh, teleological simply means concerning itself with purpose. It's all in there. Now, Yinger is not the only person who was thinking about how to define religion and what religion could be outside of these very strict ideas of a monotheistic or polytheistic kind of uh, belief system. Einstein, Wittgenstein, <laughs> he came up with the idea of defining religious systems, not as a category with clear boundaries, like if you check this in this box, then it's a religion, but instead as evidenced by what he called family resemblances. And then building off of this, another philosopher named Ninian Smart, he came up with some of the some categories that we might use to think about those family resemblances. And we're going to look at five here. The first is ritual. So common practices prescribed by and legible to others of the same worldview. And so that we don't all have to agree on what the rituals of workism 
are. Certainly Christians don't all agree on what the proper rituals of Christianity are, right? And even in this group, we might have different ideas of what those rituals are, which we'll talk about in a moment. But there are things that if someone said, I think this is a ritual of work, you would recognize the practice and be able to say, I don't know if it fits that or not, but I know what you're talking about, right? So that's ritual, common practices. The second is mythological and doctrinal. So what this means is the stories and teachings that make up a particular belief system. And we know that workism has mythological and doctrinal aspects because you all just shared all of the beliefs about work that you used to hold that you no longer hold, or that at least intellectually you no longer hold. We have, we can name a mythology of workism, right? We can point to the Silicon Valley startup founder. We can point to the person in the mailroom who works their way up to vice president of operations, right? We have these tropes, stories, and those tropes and stories then inform our beliefs about work. And we see them echoed in the media. We see them echoed in management trainings. We see them echoed in coach trainings, business trainings, all of these different things. Those belief systems are regularly reinforced. Third, we have the ethical dimension. And this is simply the moral framework that's used to determine what is in bounds and what's out of bounds. We might, one way we might think about this is the idea of professionalism. And we'll talk more about that later in the program when we talk about white supremacy culture and the ways that we that work adds these layers of totally arbitrary etiquette and ethics to say what behavior is good and what behavior is bad. But of course, there's also a whole field of business ethics right? And there are advice columns, etiquette columns, specifically for business questions or work questions. So we know there's an ethical dimension to work. Fourth is social, how a worldview defines one's identity and how one relates to others. How does workism inform who I am? And how does workism inform how I relate to you, how I relate to clients, how I relate to team members? And clearly work has a lot to say about that. And then finally, experiential. The personal experience, the sensual experience, the emotional experience of the adherent. This is the one where maybe we stretch a little bit, but I think at the same time, I don't remember now who, oh, I no. I don't remember who said it's so weird that we're all just sitting on our spending our lives in front of our computers. That's part of the experiential dimension of a large part of at least white collar workism, right? So we do have this experiential dimension as well. So that's family resemblances and sort of these dimensions of religion as a way of thinking about and understanding what the belief system, what the worldview really looks like. And I I should have said earlier that I'm using worldview and religion um, interchangeably because that's mostly accurate. I'm sure some 
religious studies folks or sociologists would quibble with me on that. But for the most part, they're the same thing. Okay, so I want to give you a moment now to jot down some things that come to mind for you in each of these dimensions. And then in a uh, a little bit later, I'm going to pull up a whiteboard and give you the opportunity to share some of the things that you wrote on the whiteboard so we can, as a group, come up with uh, examples of these dimensions in practice. I almost had a heart attack because I thought we were done at 1.30. We're not done at 1.30. We're done at 2.00. Terrence, fine. You've got 45 minutes. Okay. So I'm going to give you four minutes. <laughs> I'm going to give you four minutes to just jot down anything that comes to mind in terms of ritual, mythology and doctrine, ethics, the social components of workism, experiential. And these can be things from your own experience with work. It can be things from, that you see in the media. It can be things you've seen with clients or with team members. There are no right or wrong answers here. This is merely an exercise in recognizing some of the components of your particular belief and your particular worldview when it comes to work. Like I said, about four minutes, I'm going to turn my video off and we'll come back at about 120, 121 and we'll finish up from there.
Okay. I'm going to give you a little bit more time, but in the process, I'm going to switch from this screen share to the whiteboard. And so if there's things that you've written down, ideas that you've come up with that you want to add to the whiteboard, all you need to do is hit N once it's up. I believe that is how it works. And you'll get a sticky note that then you can type into and place on the whiteboard. This is my first time using a whiteboard, but I thought it was especially appropriate for this. And I'm assuming that you can zoom in on this on your own as well. If not, let me know, but... Oh, y'all are magical.
All right, let's go ahead and start wrapping up. That was the most fun I've ever had watching notes zoom around um, a screen. <laughs> so thank you for that. And I believe that we can continue to access this afterward. But if, but regardless, I will get it exported as a PDF or an image file and put it in your folder as well. So you can continue to reference it. Now, though, I'm going to go back. To, oh, not to that. Okay. Actually, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to stop sharing this now. We're going to exit out of it. Actually, no, that doesn't make sense. This is me thinking on the fly with a tool that I'm not used to using. <laughs> so thank you for bearing with me. Let's, oh, let me add this one in for Ash too. There we go. Got it, Ash. Okay, cool. Whoa. Oh, there we go. Something weird just happened. Okay. Thoughts? Questions? I'm going to leave this up for a little bit as we do some unpacking with questions and things here before we get into discussion. But the reason I wanted to kick this whole thing, this whole program off with this idea of workism is because the way we think and believe about work impacts how we work and what we expect from work and how we relate to work and how we relate to other workers, other managers, other coaches, other just the whole freaking world, really. And it and I truly believe that it that work impacts us and our and that that worldview impacts us in the same way that we're used to thinking about more traditional religions or philosophies or groups of practice and belief. Um, it affects us in the same way. And I think it's worth treating that belief um, with the same sort of frameworks of understanding so that we can see it a little more easily in our day-to-day -day lives. So what questions do you have, if any, about work as a worldview and or in this exercise that we just did? I think one of my questions and feelings is like, where does it stop? Like, where is that delineation between both my life as an entrepreneur, but also the just hustle culture, movement culture? I, I'm, you spoke about Beyonce's 24 hours in a podcast, with Charlie. <laughs> yeah. This brings up all of those feelings for me of just how much my extracurricular life, as I like to think about it, is built in ways to keep my work deliverable and keep me on my game so that I keep doing my work. So then the question of ritual was at first, oh, the rituals I assume are like nine to five jobs. That's the ideal work from nine to five. But then it turned into, oh, my morning coffee. Oh, my like feeling refreshed in the morning so I can be like bright eyed and bushy tailed for my clients or for my stories or for my. Yeah. So that's here for me. Yeah. 
I think the question of where does it stop is a really interesting one. Because again, if you asked someone who is very religious where their belief stops, where the influence of that belief stops, they would say that it doesn't, right? That it is part of waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, every decision that they make, every when they're just thinking about going about their day and how they want to show up. It's there all the time. It's the operating system in the background, right? And I think that's a place that work is as well. And I think my wanting to center this idea of work as a worldview is not necessarily to say that we need to quit work as a worldview, but that instead recognize it for the influence that it has in our lives because we do we so many people still for this is just logistically operationally incorrect at this point but we still think of work is the 9 to 5 work is where i go work even if it's the home office right it's this is work time this is not work time or i give myself over to the job at this time and the rest of the time is is my time but especially for knowledge workers especially for white collar workers that's just not true and for gig workers business owners entrepreneurs freelancers it's not true on the level of literally any moment in your day has the question of should i be working right now how should i be spending my time guy standing who came up with the idea of the precariat so this class of people who are living in economic precarity for lots of different reasons some white collar workers uh, some immigrants some folks who have dropped out of the working class it's a wide group but he talks about one of the the big challenges of being a member of the precariat is never knowing how to spend your time. Should I be working? Should I not be working? Should I be doing the thing that sets me up to work more? Should I be trying to find more work? Should I be filling out these forms or pitching this publication or whatever it might be, right? And I think that gets to the pervasiveness of work as a worldview as well. And so, again, I think the question is not how do we leave this religion or how do we leave this worldview, but instead, how do we shape this belief system in a way that's more humane and sustainable and right for us that matches our values and and that we can be critical of right if you're familiar at all with the the deconstruction movement within christian evangelicalism um, which is essentially people who grew up in the church never questioning the church realizing later in life i need to systematically go through what i believe and ask myself do I or do I just believe that because I was told I was supposed to believe that? I think a lot of my work, uh, I think a lot about my work as a deconstruction process and saying, okay, here's a belief that you have about work that you might not realize was a belief and not necessarily fact. What are we going to do with it? 
Do you still want to believe it? Because if you do, fine. Cool. That's your choice. And it might be a great choice for you. I might make the same choice, but you have an option, right? We can freely choose what we believe in. And without identifying these structures as beliefs, we lose the agency to say, yeah, that's something I actually believe, or that's something I actually want to believe. And that's something I want to guide my life versus I don't believe that. And I think that there's probably a different way that I could go about that. So I don't know if that necessarily answers the question of where does it end, but hopefully it gives some some food for thought. Can I say something? Yeah, please. I just, I really appreciated that you said all that because I think about like, institutions. And I think about this in my own life. I think about it with the clients who I serve. And those institutions could be work. They could be religion. They could be marriage. They could be anything that we accept. This is the rules of engagement. And this is what we're, what it's, I'm supposed to do in this context. And I agree. And I'm just, I always find it a little bit relieving to say, I can question this without rejecting it outright. Because in many ways, there are things about work that are really great for me. And I think work is that context where we can figure out what we love to do and we can belong places and we can make things and we can have fun and we can grow. And I'm starting to detect in the literature right now, this kind of forgive the language, fuck work type of rhetoric, which is works the enemy, works the problem. And it's, I would love some more nuance around that Mm -hmm. where we say there's, there are aspects of work that we've all believed and swallowed that are harmful to us universally. There are things that work for some of us and not for others of us. And it's just that, that that discernment that I hope we're all working towards, whether it's faith, whether it's this, whether it's family, whatever. But I just want to say that, I, that complexity is what I'm seeking all the time. It's like yeah. not good or bad. The world's not like that. It's there, it's definitely much more nuanced. So that's what I want to say. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I so appreciate that. Oh, shoot. There was something. Oh, I know what I was going to say. <laughs> there are two... If if we're looking on the leftist side of politics and economics and thinking about really revolutionary ideas, there's two two schools of thought when it comes to work. One is anti-work and one is post-work. And there's merits to both, right? But anti-work is pretty like we need to build a society where no one has to work, like full uh, fully automated luxury communism, I believe, or socialism is one of the calling cards of the anti-work group. And I think that there's some there's interesting ideas there. And I find myself being more drawn to the post-work ideas, which are not so much about not working, but they're more about agency, choice, caring, thinking about how the way we spend our time impacts others, and then also accepting the ways that they spend their time can impact us, both positively, hopefully. And I think that's a really interesting piece. I'm just finishing reading a book that is thinking about post-work imaginaries in terms of reproductive labor. So a lot of the things that we do inside the home, caring for the elderly, caring for children, cooking, cleaning, just getting ready for the next day's work. And if we acknowledge that that stuff is work, we can't really say that we're necessarily anti-work. That gets weird to try and suss that out. But if instead we can say, what if those activities weren't in service of capital? And how do we rethink our relationship to those activities outside the system of capital? 
then I think we can get some really interesting potential choices and possibilities and imagine new ways of of doing things. So that's not necessarily an area I feel totally comfortable teaching within or talking through, but those are those were two of the things that came to mind when you mentioned the nuance piece. Uh, I wanted to pull in some of the chat here. Rachel uh, F. has uh, added uh, that she's been using the term work-life harmony versus balance as part of my frame-up of work. And Julie says, it's like redefining the purpose of work and perhaps focusing on work more as a contribution, as being a useful member of your community slash society versus it all being about our personal purpose and also as one aspect of our life purpose. Yeah, I dig that. Other questions, comments, Rachel. Hi, just a quick comment and a quick and a question to you. One is what came up for me as I was doing the free write was just all of the beliefs around people who aren't working, who lose <laughs> their job, is like a big one, and what the kind of protocols are and just people's responses to that as if they have lost everything or just the floor has fallen and they're lost or going to float away kind of things. I was just thinking about just what is the impact when people lose jobs or things happen and how people respond to that, which is pretty amazing to think. It just holds so much space. And I'm just, you can hold on the answer, but I will just put it out there because I've been so curious as when I read your book and then as we're digging into this, but by seeing really just recognizing the influence that work has had and like all of the work that you've put into this has your, your own view shifted significantly around work. Oh yeah. In what ways haven't they shifted? I think <laughs> I often feel like I'm when I write about this stuff, when I think and talk about this stuff, that I'm that there's part of it that what am I trying to say? My my understanding of work and my beliefs about work and the way I work has changed dramatically over the last almost 20 years. And at the same time, my values haven't changed. What I've, what I think what has actually happened and the way I like to think about it is that I have become more aware of the ways my values, what I truly believe, and the what I learned about the belief system of work and the moral framework, the, the ethics of work and the values of work, that those two things were pretty fundamentally out of alignment and that I have taken what I know about work and how I work and just getting a job or making money or whatever, and tried to move it closer and closer and closer to my values to come into alignment as much as possible. And so I think that's true, not only in terms of work, but it's true in terms of politics and social relations and just my place in the world. The values have been very consistent, but my knowledge of the systems that underlie those things have helped me reconfigure my thinking and my practice so that 
they're closer to actually fulfilling my values than they were before. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and close the whiteboard so that we can see ourselves a little bit better. Um, but if we need to come back to it, or like I said, I'll make sure that there's a copy of it for everybody to see. I really appreciate um, you all playing with that. Oh, Nyla says her doctoral research was about job loss. And so much of what she found is that what let is what led her to the work she does now. Yeah, I think thinking about job loss, thinking about the underemployed, thinking about those who just can't work their way back into the system, whether because of incarceration or other kinds of structural violence and systemic violence is a really interesting flip side to all of this. And it's something we I don't think we're going to get into specifically over the course of these 12 weeks. But I always like to think who is not being included here. This whole religious structure of work, if we ask who isn't being included here, who doesn't feel welcome at the table, who doesn't feel, I used to be a Methodist. And so our tagline was something like open doors, open hearts, open open something else. I don't remember what the other open was. <laughs> It's like, who's the door not open to? And yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really important thing to think about. I also always think about the end of David Graeber's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, um, where he closes out the whole book by saying, let me put in a good word for the non-industrious poor, right? Because we're always lifting up the industrious poor. But what about the non-industrious poor, the poor that aren't working or that are working very little? And he talks about in so much as they're not doing damage in their communities, they're probably spending time tons of time doing caregiving, tons of time organizing or, or just making things work in the community itself. And you know what? Those people are just as good as the people who are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week or working multiple jobs and are still poor. The system's failing both, both groups. So I think about that a lot too. Julie. Yeah. Another piece is how do we define what work is, right? We hear a lot the idea of unpaid labor and like domestic labor, but it's, I've been really looking at my own biases on where, what I can say something. So I'll say briefly, I've had a really interesting six to 12 months because I haven't been working and I've been leaning on my, my partner's mother passed suddenly. And we've been leaning on some money that we inherited. Mm-hmm. which is in on some level it feels like a big deal to even say that like this has been a process of wow this is like the first time in my adult life I've been able to like just take some time off and it's not like I can do this forever but I have this um privilege right now and it's it's really allowed me to look at a lot of this stuff from a really different place and um and the piece about how I define work and what my redefinition of what's important and what I consider work right now, I literally had to change the little blocks on my calendar, like yellow is work, right? And then all of a sudden there wasn't work in yellow. And I'm like, wait a minute though, I'm doing all this. I'm doing like work on my ancestry and my, and, and, and genealogy and I, and, and, and lineage healing. And I'm doing, I'm doing all this work and are creating this massive garden and all this. And I'm like, I'm starting to even on my calendar, just recognize that as work and not have my have to have the work be equated with money. And 
it's a it's it's been a going against a lot of ingrained habit about what is what's valued in our society but even in myself and then I'll feel like myself judging other people for now I don't I'm actually getting out of this habit but I know I really notice how our definition of that or that our connection between what we get paid money for and work is like the only thing that is valuable and it, it's so destructive and untrue and insane it's literally insane and I can feel my body like a little bit breaking away from that in this in these like months that I've had so it's just been really interesting and wanted to share that context yeah I think that question of what is work is really important and also so big and hairy that I didn't include it (laughs) because how do you define it and how you define it shapes the politics of work so much in addition to the belief system around work. Yeah. Oh, shoot. I'm. Why am I losing track of my thoughts? I think probably because I'm listening really hard. Oh, I was going to say that in terms of valuing work and the work we value, the thing that I always go back to, and I apologize because you probably all have at least read or heard me say this multiple times, but like GDP in the US, paid care work is counted in GDP. Unpaid care work is not counted in GDP. So if I pay somebody to take care of my kid or clean my house, that's part of our gross domestic product. But if I do it, it's not. That's absurd. It's absurd. And it is, it is, it's gendered. It is, it is just, uh, there's, it's racialized. It's gendered. It's so gross and weird and just absolutely bizarre. But it gets down to this question of what is work. Yeah. And same with buying food and growing food. Absolutely. Yes. If I go grocery shopping, that's not counted in GDP other than the purchase that I make. But if I have the Whole Foods people to shop for me and deliver it, that is GDP. What? How is that possible? (laughs) Anyhow, sometimes things just get so absurd that I lose all anything, just anything. (laughs) It's crazy. Okay. So maybe a a collaborative definition of work is something that as a group we could work on during these 12 weeks. And I have some ideas of things that I've been wanting to put forth as definitions of work, but there's also other sources that I could bring in in addition to getting you all to weigh in. And I think that could be a sort of a fun thing that we do maybe outside of these sessions, but collaboratively if you want to participate in that and would make a nice resource for all of us in the end as well. We've got about nine minutes left. Other questions, other ideas that came up for you or noticings that came up for you that you want to share with the group or want to ask me about or really anything. This this time is yours. Jamie? I just want to reflect. It's just been so interesting hearing these different questions and the answers to them and how they do all connect to religion. Like Just going back to the first question, how do you escape it? And then you're like, you can't entirely. And I just think I, it's always been my observation. I grew up like generic white bread, Protestant. We went to church and whatever. It wasn't like, I grew up like, I am a Protestant, not some random non-denominational Protestant as part of my identity. But it's been my observation that in certain 
religions or denominations, that's more the case that it's really, I am a Catholic, not like mm-hmm. I practice Catholicism, I am Catholic. I think the same with Jewish people, like I am Jewish. Whether you do any of the rituals of Judaism, you are Jewish. And that's, I think, like you're saying, like we are workists, <laughs> but just the way I observe people, like particularly Catholic and Jewish people in my life who are not um, necessarily practicing, even though they still identify as that, they have found a way to, they've picked the things that work, the parts of it that work for them mm-hmm. and the parts of it that don't work for them and are able to are, live in a segment of our culture where they're able to do that without judgment. But I think that's what we're talking about here too with workism, right? It's like exam questioning which things, this is what you said, Tara, like the, questioning the things and saying, am I going to keep this part or am I going to let this part go? Just as many religious people have done without fully, necessarily fully rejecting their religious identity. And then things like, we, we talked about losing your job, but what about people who choose not to work and the judgment around that? Sounds a lot like the judgment that I'm sure many religious people who choose not to do X, Y, Z things as part of their religion get. And all this stuff, which, yeah, it comes back to it being a system of values and social shoulds, just like religion is. It's really interesting to see those. It's really interesting. I'm glad you picked up on all of that. Yeah, I think that the challenge and the reason why I wanted to start here is because when we look at, say, Catholicism, there is a doctrine, right? We can say, these are the things, these are the practices, these are the beliefs, these are the papal decrees, right? There is a centralized idea of what this belief Mm -hmm. system is. And with workism, there's not. It's very decentralized, right? Like basically the whole self-help and career section of a bookstore we could look at as sacred texts of workism, right? Not to mention the management section and the leadership section, right? And so it is so much harder to to take a belief or a ritual or an idea and examine it closely. But I think it's a really valuable practice when we do. And so a lot, I think, as I already said, a lot of what we're going to be doing over the course of this program is just all of that noticing, like, okay, let's take a look at this particular belief, especially in the excuse me, in the last month, we're going to look at vocational awe. We're going to look at the passion paradigm. We're going to look at the work-love schema, right? We're going to look at these very particular things that we grew up with in the ether, but that we don't recognize as things that we can buy into or not buy into and get a little more closely with that. Julie asks... Rachel asks, can work be a chosen spiritual path while also dismantling capitalism? Oh, 100%. Yes. I think that's a great question. And I'm sure I could come up with a much lengthier answer than 100% yes. But but work as a choice and as a manner of pursuit, that has a long history of in other religious contexts, right? If we think Uh, just going back to Catholicism, if we think about St. Francis, St. Benedict, if we look at those orders of devoted practitioners, those groups center work and they do so as a spiritual path. And But you opt into that, right? That's not something 
that you're born into. You might be born into the Catholic faith, but you're not born a monk. That's a choice. And so I think choice is, is a big piece here. Um, and then Julie says, but is work worthy of being the focus of a religion even? I've read w- one article by a Christian person who said that workism was idolatry. Oh, that's an interesting. My guess is that there would be that same person could make a an argument for basically any non-Christian belief system being idolatry. <laughs> so that becomes problematic, right? But I think it's less for me, like thinking about it as a as whether it's worthy or not as a focus and more just like we're describing what is. And so even if we can say, I don't want to be part of this, I'm choosing a different way. That's fine. But acknowledging that this is something that most of us hold in common in terms of a cultural belief system, I think is really helpful from just a world, like an understanding the world perspective. Ooh, Ash says, I'm curious too about the I am a workist versus I practice workism and its connection to cultural appropriation and self-given permission and language use. That I'm going to have to think more about. Yeah, I'm going to have to think more on that one. No, it's like a big, hairy question, but my mind is going to, yeah, just all of the spaces where we say, I'm taking this from whatever culture and I'm using it in my own life to do this thing for me and those connections, Mm. but also like where we can start drawing lines between us practicing and choosing this thing versus claiming it as an identity and then discovering ourselves inside of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is that a large part of workism as we're defining it here is not the same as, but certainly adjacent to whiteness and white supremacy culture in the way that it's totalizing and dominating as opposed to something that has that sort of cultural heritage to it. I don't ever want to think about creating a cultural heritage of workism. Um, that's, that's bleak, uh, even if like, that might be a step too far for me. But I think, yeah, I, I'm, I want to think more about that. I think it's a really interesting question. Y'all, I've got two o'clock my time. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. We've got the clarity flow thread that some of you have found your way to. I set up a thread specifically for discussing this week's session. Anything that any qu- more questions that you have, anything that you didn't get a chance to contribute that you wanted to share, all that good stuff, really anything that comes to mind that you want to share in there is fair game. And if not, if you're just happy to come to the sessions, that's great too. I'm happy for you to participate in whatever way feels most comfortable for you. Um, so that's that. You've got my email. You've got the clarity flow. Let me know if you need clarification on anything. Next week, we are talking about meritocracy and immunity to change. And it's going to be so fun. <laughs> okay. At least fun for me. Thank you all. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.